0: Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to First Samuel chapter two. If you don't, we have the words on the screen uh, behind me, so you'll be able to follow along with what we're doing. Uh, let me—if uh, if, if you're here and I've never met you, my name's Stephen, the other Stephen on staff here. We did that to confuse as many people as possible. It seems to be working. Um, so if you just say, "Hey, Stephen," one of the two of us is going to look. I don't think does anybody else have like even your middle name or anything, Stephen? Anybody? No. Any? No? Good. So, we're the only two. So, Stephen, it's you and me, wherever you are. So Okay. Uh, we are looking at uh, an Old Testament book of the Bible, 1 Samuel, and uh, if you can recall, those of you who've been with us, uh, what was going on over the past couple of weeks is there was a, a woman named Hannah, and she was unable to have any children, and uh, her, uh, this isn't a polygamous society, so there, this man was married to two women, and her rival, Panina would provoke her and try to hurt her and scar her. And uh, so Hannah just eventually took it all to the Lord, and the Lord gave her a son named Samuel. And so last week we looked at Hannah's prayer, and uh, this week we're going to be looking at, uh, once she's prayed and left the child Samuel there, what is going on in Israel as a whole. But I feel like I need to give you a little bit even further background on this passage, and not by looking at the historical details, but really looking at uh, what the Bible says about who God is. Uh, a guy named Peter Wenner said, of all of the qualities the Bible ascribes to God, compassion is among the most shocking. Now that's shocking for us to hear that because we think, "Well, no, I've grown up in the church. I think God should be compassionate. But this, he goes on to say this. He said, compassion has nothing to do with power, with immortality, or with immutability. That's God's unchangeableness which is what many people think of when they contemplate God's qualities. The Greek gods of myth who lived on Mount Olympus were defined by many things, but compassion was not high among them. And so he says that compassion, on the other hand, is central to the Christian message, the compassion of God. So when God is appearing before Moses uh, and uh, passing before him in his glory, God is saying, this is who I am. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. That's how he starts that. And when you go through like the Psalms, you hear that refrain over and over. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate God. So this is in Psalm 103. It says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who trust him. Now, compassion implies the capacity to enter into places of pain, to weep with those who weep. So another's heartbreak becomes your heartbreak, and you act to relieve their suffering. Our God is a God who saves. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because we're going to read something that is going to be shocking to a lot of you. Um, Some of you may have had experiences that may feel like this is triggering for you. But as we go through, I want you to keep this in the background because we're going to pull this through over and over as we go through this passage. Does that sound good? Okay, it better because that's what we're doing. Okay, so we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 and following. If you're willing and able in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read this portion of scripture. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. By the way, that's wrong. They shouldn't have been doing that. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, well, let, the, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no. You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. So they're going against some things that were prescribed in the Levitical law. So they're doing what's wrong in God's sight. So we read in verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him every year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they laid with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear, of your e- I hear of your evil doings with all the people. No, my sons, it's no good. Report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man from, of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is a hard word. It's hard to understand. Uh, But God has given it to us because he loves us and he wants us to understand who he is. So let's pray and ask him to bless us as we uh, dig into this a little more deeply. Let me pray for us. The scriptures are very clear that your ways are not our ways, nor your thoughts our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, there are your thoughts and ways higher than ours. And so there are things in here that we would look at, Lord, and we would misrepresent, because we can only think of what is in our own minds and hearts. So we pray that you would guide us and lead us by your Spirit to see you in your great wisdom, your your glory, but also to see you in your grace. Would you bless us and would you be with us now as we open this up? And Lord, I pray that you'd be with me. Uh, There's so many things that are going through my mind and my heart that would disable me from proclaiming what is in this passage. And so I pray that you would be pleased to uh, reign in my heart and my unruly mind and enable me to proclaim what is here in this passage for the sake of your people. Would you bless us and would you be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, So behind this story are three big truths that we're going to talk about. They're not in your outline because I tend to change things on Saturday night to the chagrin of uh, all the people back there. So uh, here are the three big truths for your life we're going to talk about this morning. One is God can be known truly and accurately. Number two, God is always working redemptively even when we can't see it. And three, the story, the story, the story, the story of everything is a redemptive story. So You're kind of like, we could be done now. No, we need to talk about this passage in the light, so let's talk about this. Truth number one, God can be known accurately and truly and wants us to know him accurately and truly. Okay. So let me help you step into what we're going to talk about with that. One of my favorite movies of all times is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it gets quoted a good bit in my house. One of my favorite lines is, Dr. Jones, once again, we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. What a great line. So throw me the idol, I throw you the whip. Just a very quotable movie. Um, But uh, you're kind of like, what does this have to do with the sermon? I'll explain it. In the movie, Indiana Jones goes on a quest to find the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, in this movie, he goes from one place to the next to try to find where the Ark of the Lord is. So he ends up in Nepal at one point. He ends up in Cairo, He ends up in the desert. He ends up in the Aegean Sea or something at different points in the midst of the story. And uh, at the back of this passage is an important truth. Is God has not left it to us to go on this quest throughout all the different places in the world to try to find who he is. Because he's, he's done something different. If you look at every culture in the past and present, you'll see that deeply buried in human psychology is this idea that there's a God. There's something that is out there in, throughout, the, throughout the world today and yesterday. This is the bent of the human heart. Uh, I was reading a story not too long ago about an atheist who became a Christian, and he said even when he was not a Christian, there was this pull towards asking the questions about is there a God and what would God be like? So belief in God is, is a natural bent of human psychology, but we can't just think up who God is. And the Israelites of old didn't just think up who God is. When we do that, we're invariably wrong. If they had done it, they would have been invariably wrong. So they didn't invent a God, and then that gained popularity throughout the world. God revealed himself to them in a variety of ways, in a variety of manners. So in what we have in the Bible recorded is a record of that revelation. So there are ways he He revealed himself to them uh, physically in the material world. So the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the uh, Tabernacle, the tent system where they would offer these sacrifices, the tablets with the Ten Commandments, the sacrifices themselves, they were all meant to reveal something about God. And so what God did is he worked with this one people group, the Israelites, starting with Abraham. He worked in this one people group, and he promised them this piece of property that we refer to as the promised land. You might be watching this on the news quite a bit these days. So he promised them this land. And part of the reason he did that is because that piece of property is a land bridge connecting Europe and Africa and Asia. And the reason that we see in scripture over and over God is talking about then the nations will be brought in. The nations will offer praise and honor and glory to the Lord. So what God is doing is he's revealing himself in one place to one people for the whole world to come and say this is where you go right so indiana jones has it wrong in that sense we don't go on a quest to india and then to ethiopia and then we go to um place in south america because i'm an american i don't know any geography but there are countries that are there and so brazil and so uh <laughs> yeah, it's really funny yeah, just like my brain just shut off like what countries are in south america peru and so So it's not like Indiana Jones, we're all trying to solve this kind of mystical puzzle about God. God has revealed himself to us. And this passage is largely about how serious God takes the clarity of the gospel message. Because what we saw a while ago, uh, as we were starting the sermon, is that God is a God of compassion. But there's so many people who think that God is simply a God who is vindictive and mean-spirited, And callous. And so God is concerned to show us in all of these ways that he is a God who defines himself as being compassionate. And so when you start looking at the temple system in the Old Testament with all the animals that are being sacrificed, that is a picture of God's compassion for his people. These are the lengths that God would go to to, for our sins to be removed from us, to be placed on something that's innocent so that we who were guilty could be forgiven for our sins. And the whole Old Testament sacrificial system is pointing to the coming of one who would come eventually and remove all of our sin, all of our guilt. It was pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. And so as we're looking at this passage, uh, it's about how seriously God takes salvation and how seriously he takes his grace and the message of his love and the gospel and the identity of his son, Jesus. He takes it very seriously. He allows for no distortion, no novelty, no misrepresentation, no innovation. He says, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm doing for you. And so this passage matters because as we step into it, the first things we read about Eli's sons in verse 12 is they're worthless men. Now that's not talking about their value. Uh, one of the commentary I read said that word talking about them being worthless means that they are uh, they're a corrupting influence on everybody who comes in. Now, I've talked to people, I know people, who have been through some sort of church abuse or church hurt. That's, people are talking about this a lot these days. And when people go through that, it's hard for them to be in this kind of a setting with all those thing, without all of those things coming back in. Singing Christian songs is painful. Hearing about the love of God becomes painful. And so what has happened is that's been misrepresented. And this happens a lot. I got a phone call this week from a friend of mine in another city. And there's a large church in that city that's getting ready to have to announce to everyone that this has been taking place. And my friend on the phone with me, his best friend's daughter, was one of the young women who was caught up and suffered abuse at his hands, this person's hands. It happens all the time. Now, this is not simply a problem with the church. We've gone through culturally this Me Too movement over the past couple of years and it's pretty horrible, but it doesn't, it's not just the church. It's, the, it's military, it's Hollywood, it's academics, it's atheist condition, conventions, it's senior care, it's the sciences. It, it's not a church problem. It's not a problem of church people, but it hurts a lot more deeply for most of us when it is church people and it takes place because it, bringing these things into the presence of God, uh, it hurts. And God wants us to know he's a compassionate God. He's a loving God. He's a tender hearted God. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. And he doesn't like any of these things. And so as we are stepping into this passage, you know, if, you, if you've been through something like that, you might be thinking, why would God allow something like that to happen? And this passage doesn't tell us. But it does tell us what he thinks about it. Because he tells us exactly what he's going to do to Hophni and Phinehas. He's going to be a mama grizzly bear. And he's going to come and take them down. He's going to remove them so no longer can they be in that position. I'm removing them because they didn't honor me. They didn't honor my purposes, but they made it about themselves and their own honor. And then instead, he tells us what he's going to do in chapter 2, verse 35. He says that I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and what is in my mind. So God's saying, I am going to redeem this situation. I'm going to change it. And do something uh, amazing with it. So here's truth two. God is always working redemptively even when we can't see it. This is a corrupt system. uh, And perhaps we can become cynical and disheartened until we see what this text is telling us. God is at work even when we don't see it. So where do you see this in this passage that God is at work? We've got Hophni and Phinehas being abusive to all of Israel is what Eli says. And then you've got Eli who's probably complicit with it. He knows about it, but in that culture where there's no QT and DQ, how is somebody going to eat enough food to be able to become as large as he was? It means that he was doing the same thing of plunging his fork in and taking the meat as well. He was involved, and he was complicit. He knew what his kids were doing. So um, where do we see God at work? Well... It's this little woven thing. It's like there's something under the surface that just kind of pops up and then goes back down and pops up and comes back down. And it's the little boy Samuel. As you're reading about all these horrible things that are going on, God is hinting at something big he's going to do in, with Samuel's life because Samuel becomes a prophet as important as Moses in the eyes of, of most Jews. He's quoted in the New Testament the time of Samuel. Moses brought the people out of slavery in Egypt, out of a despotic king. Samuel was the one who brought in the, uh, the kingship, the monarchy, and a loved king. And so we read these things about uh, Samuel as we go through verse 11. Then Alkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Verse 21, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stage, stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that even though this corruption had been taking place in the temple for a, for a while, God still was at work. He was at work. He listened to Hannah when she stood before him and wept and prayed before him for a child and God answered her prayer. So even though there's corruption going on, God is being faithful. And here, God is being faithful to have this little boy Nobody notices. He's the, he's the little temple rat that runs around. Everybody just kind of sees running around, but they have no idea how significant this kid is that on the one place on the planet where the word of God and the sacrifices of God, all of these things, he's going to hear these day to day. That's where this kid is growing up. It's pretty amazing that God's doing that. So let me ask you a question about all of this. Do you think that God can work above and beyond Broken things in your life. I read a story this week about a man who is a pastor, because pastors like to tell stories about themselves, I guess. So he was telling a story about himself. He was at a new church in California, and uh, he was trying to get to know some of the younger people in the church. So he, I pointed to you. You're all younger people in the church. Um, so he went out and played basketball, and uh, he tore his ACL and his MCL that day. And he said it was the worst day of his life. He was in so much pain. He had multiple surgeries. And he said when he went in for therapy, uh, the lady who was his therapist, and he got talking about what he did for a living, all these things. And she let it be clear, clearly known that her father was an atheist. She was a recent divorcee. She had a child she was struggling to raise, and she wasn't really making enough money to be able to do this. And so she was just angry at God, angry at God. And so he started to tell her his story. She was just like, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear your story. But, you know, you go there over several weeks for therapy, and so he's having conversations with her. And finally, he just said, Why don't you just explore Jesus for yourself? And so she did. And a couple of weeks later, she believed in Jesus, and uh, she started going to the church where he was pastoring and hobbling around. Eventually, he was called to another uh, church and uh, went uh, in another state, but he was called to go back and preach at his church one Sunday. It was about two years later. And she came up to him with tears in her eyes and talked about how God was working in her daughter's life and how God was working in her life and through her and the lives of other people. And this pastor said, yeah, that's probably worth a knee to me. You know? All I could see at that moment was myself. But God opened my eyes to see, wait, he's doing something bigger than just what he's doing with me in this hard thing. I know it's, I'm watching the news like you are. Uh, I'm watching the primary stuff like you are. And uh, I'm also hearing all of the, the war, rumor, conversations about war and rumors of war and what's on the horizon for us. And it would be very easy to get discouraged and disheartened um, about everything that's taking place. But do you think that maybe, maybe God could be working in the background in answer to his, our prayers and to your prayers about what the future holds. And he might be doing something that none of us expect. Because as I talk, particularly to, you know, I'm, I'm still 25 in my mind, so I'm still. But I'm, I'm actually older than. Greg um, Rebecca's laughing because, like, in our minds and our bodies, we're you know, 307. And uh, anyway, so I was thinking, I do feel 307 somewhere. morning. <laughs> so uh, as I get back on my train of thought, there's where I'm going. The um, as we start thinking about all the broken things around us, we feel like this is the worst time in some of our lives, and say, this is scary. This is difficult. I've asked my older guy's Bible study about, is, is it was it harder when you were growing up or harder now? Was it scarier then? Were things more tense then, or is it tense now? And a lot of them said, it feels more tense now. And so what's going to happen? Including the church. A lot of people feel like the church is now going by the wayside. But listen to this. Early in 1740, an American pastor by the name of Samuel Blair was writing, and he wrote this, religion lay, as it were, a dying. You can tell it's 1740 because he actually wrote a dying. Religion lay, as it were, a dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. is yeah, that fascinating that he felt that in 1740? Now, here's the thing that's amazing as you've known anything about church history and about the history of the United States. Later that year in 1740 is when people point to the beginning of what we refer to as the Great Awakening. And this is a movement of God's Holy Spirit and of preaching where mass numbers of people came to faith in Jesus. There was renewal among other people. So earlier that year, there's a guy saying the church appears to be dying and the the testimony of Jesus appears to be lost in the coming generations. And uh, that was when God chose to work in a powerful way. Do you think that maybe, maybe, God might be doing more than we're expecting? Do you think that maybe we could be praying and saying, "Lord, uh, help me to see this differently"? As you priming the pump and getting ready for something big to take place and beautiful in our midst, He's always working towards redemption. But sometimes, even in our lives, we would say, well, it, I don't feel like I'm getting redemption just yet." Right? My life is hard right now, and I can't see the end of this. I can't promise you that things are going to get better and easier in your life. But what I can promise you is that in the great scheme of things, God has another story that's at work, and it's bigger than your story. It's not just your story. It's a story of Jesus. And God tells us in verse 35 exactly what he has planned here. He says in verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Who he's ultimately talking about is Jesus. Now there's going to be other priests along the way who are going to be more faithful than Hophni and Phinehas. But ultimately the person he's talking about is Jesus himself. It's not Samuel. You might think, well, Samuel's in the temple. Maybe he's the one he's talking about. He's going to raise up. And God saying, no, he's just, uh, he's got other plans. He's going to be a prophet, but not the priest to replace Eli. And you might think, well, maybe it's Samuel. He's going to do something big. Well, the threads of God's providence extend only a little bit beyond this chapter for Samuel. Hebrews removed from the story. So maybe God has in store somebody else. See, underneath uh, Samuel's redemptive story is this great redemptive story. The whole story is a story of redemption. Hophni and Phinehas are awful. They're terrible priests. They're terrible people. But what would we expect when the message of the Old Testament is, we need something better. We need somebody better. And this is true of all of the Old Testament priests. Uh, the priests could never take away our sins because they heaped up their own. Who's the first priest that's recorded in Bible besides Melchizedek? It's Aaron. So Aaron is the one who built the golden calf while Moses is up on uh, Mount Sinai. That's pretty bad. And then his sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, they offer strange fire and God immediately takes their lives. And then you're looking here at Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and They're not doing a great job in their role. And during the time of Jesus, the high priest was the one who handed Jesus over uh, to the, the Romans to be crucified. So in this way, you're looking at all these men and saying they all failed. Of course they failed. How could these men ever atone for sin? The story of the Old Testament is that we need someone better. We need a better king. Better than King David. We need somebody better than King Saul. We need King Jesus. We need a better priest. We need a better prophet. We need a better sacrifice. We need someone better. And everything that's here is setting the stage for Jesus to come in. And we see it hinted at here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 25. Eli asked a really important question. Uh, he says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And Eli's implied answer is nobody. Nobody could. But then we read this in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 to 6. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for our sins. So, what he's pushing us to see is that we have a mediator, we have this kind of priest, we have this kind of sacrifice. And we actually see this being expressed in the New Testament book of Hebrews. It says, for, we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 7, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Or in Hebrews chapter 10, 11, we read this about Jesus. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins when he was on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time Those who are being sanctified. So what's he looking for? A priest who will put the Father's will before his own. Remember when Jesus was in the garden? He says, not my will, but your will be done. The Father has compassion, and that's the kind of priest he wants. A priest who shows that he has compassion on us even when we sin and seeks to bridge that distance even when we sin. I read a great story as I was preparing for this and, and thinking about it. And we have this idea that when we, uh, when we sin, God keeps his distance from us, not recognizing that God our Father's heart goes out to us even when we sin. And even when we're being disciplined and it's our fault and we're, we're dealing with the brokenness of what we've done ourselves, God's compassion goes out for us. So a man told us telling a story, I think it was a true story, it may have been a count from his own life, he said that when he w- there's a man and his wife and they had a young son, and this is back in the day when you, catch, you would actually discipline your children this way, so he said uh, his son was acting up, and they said if he continued to act up, he would have to go sleep in the attic with just bread and water for dinner uh, that 's a call from the police, I think that today you don 't do that. Uh, this, is not a, this is not a parenting seminar right now, so this is different. So in this day, uh, the, the sun continued to act up. And so they made the son go up to the attic with just bread and water. And so his wife and he sat down at the table and she could tell. She could tell that the dad didn't want to do this. And so she said across the table. She said, if you let him off and let him down to the table to eat with us, he's just going to learn that he can do whatever he wants. And so you've, we've got to, we have to let him go through this discipline. And the dad said, yeah, he has to go through the discipline. So he finished up his meal, and when he got through this meal, he said goodnight to his wife, and he went upstairs to where his son was. And he laid with his son on this hard wooden floor, and that night they slept there, and his arm was his son's pillow as they drifted off to sleep. I thought, that's a great picture of our father. Even when we have sinned, even it's when it's our fault, even when we might be being disciplined or going through hard things, our father is compassionate towards us and moves towards us in the midst of our brokenness. The story, the story, the world story, is how God is providing a redeemer, a savior, a sacrifice, who even if we uh, go through hard things in our lives, we have this underlying grace that's there. Even when we blow it, even when we sin, we have this underlying grace for those who are in Christ who believe and trust in him to say, my father, I know, is a God of grace and he's going to receive me. Campus minister for the ministry I used to work with talked about when they were uh, new parents and you're figuring out things with your children. His toddler, who was still in, in diapers but could speak very well and express herself, he was changing her at the, the changing table and she stood up and started dancing on the changing table and he couldn't get her to sit down and, and kind of lay down. And so she would just get up and start dancing on the changing table and finally said, honey, you've got to lay back down, or you're going to fall off of here right into the trash bin. And she said, well, if I do that, you're just going to pick me up, and we're going to dance. He said, it was parenting that child that enabled him to understand God's love for him. You'll just pick me up, and we'll dance. When you recognize that, when you recognize that it's not dependent upon me, I am more like Aaron, I am more like Uh, Eli, I'm more like those guys than I am like Jesus. I need a priest like Jesus to intercede for me because I can't intercede for myself or for anybody else. I need him. But when you realize I have him, that changes everything for you. I have the love of someone who will love me no matter what, not based on my performance, but based solely upon his love, his compassion for me. I had a student years ago, and I saw this at work in her life, uh, the first night she showed up to our large group meeting, uh, our, our Bible study, which is very similar actually to this, what we're doing here. I had never met her, didn't know anything about her, but I, I was preaching on the love of the Father for us. And uh, I read a children's story where it talked about God's love. And for whatever reason, that's what she needed to hear, and she needed to hear God's word. And so by the end of the night, she was in tears, crying, crying. Because she was looking at two different things in her life. One, she was looking at her earthly dad. And in her earthly dad, uh, she saw uh, somebody who was never satisfied with her, always criticized her for what she was wearing, how she looked, how she talked, what she was doing, her grades, everything constantly on top of her. And she felt like there's nothing I can ever do for this person to love me. And then she was hearing about the compassion of God and the love of God and the mercy of God that no matter what I did, he was going to love me. And that transformed her. And so her whole life she had spent trying to earn her dad's approval, and she never could. And so it was breaking her. But when she realized, I have a heavenly father who has given his own son for me to reconcile me, that completely changes things. I have a priest who will not abuse me, but who faced abuse for me. I have a priest who will not demand I sacrifice for him, but one who sacrificed for me. I have a priest who doesn't just know God, but is God. That's the redemptive story that's underneath your story. If you're in Christ, that's the underlying redemptive story. So we see Jesus giving his life for us. And we realize... We've had it backwards. We think I've we've thought I have to earn God's compassion, and God says no. I show compassion for you, and then you recognize my love and you restore that and return it towards me. We read in the scriptures as a father has compassion on his children, that the father has compassion on those who trust him and believe in him. Let me pray for us. So, so many things are said in this passage. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see you as the priest that is promised here one who sacrifices for us, one who gives himself for us, one who gives us great gifts uh, in salvation one whose work for us undergirds our whole life from beginning to end and leads on into eternity, one who shows the heart of the Father, that the Father loves us. Lord Jesus, you truly did embody the heart and the mind of the Father. You truly did show us your love. We pray that you would help us to walk in it. Lord Jesus, you are great. Would you bless us as we sing this last song? We pray that you would receive it as an act of worship in our parts, and we pray it in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.